Please turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 37. We will be looking at chapters 37 and 38 tonight as we near the end of the book of Exodus and look again at the construction of the tabernacle. Exodus chapter 37. Bezalel made the ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half was its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. And he overlaid it with pure gold inside and outside and made a molding of gold around it. And he cast for it four rings of gold for its four feet, two rings on its one side and two rings on its other side. And he made poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold and put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark. And he made a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half was its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And he made two cherubim of gold. He made them of hammered work on the two ends of the mercy seat. One cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat, he made the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, with their faces one to another, toward the mercy seat where the faces of the cherubim. Now pause for a second. If you have a very good memory and remember when we looked a couple of months ago at the beginning of these instructions, remember we have here the construction of the tabernacle after receiving the instructions for building the tabernacle. If you go back to chapter 25, you will notice that the very first element after the Sabbath instructions are given is to create, to build the Ark of the Covenant. So first we have the Ark of the Covenant, those instructions, and then later we have the actual tabernacle itself. Now, why was it given in that order? Because the Ark was the, the holiest of the artifacts to be placed inside the tabernacle, and so it made sense that the Ark would come first. But now, if you are very astute, you will have noticed that the order is reversed when it comes to the actual construction of these items. Look back to the end of chapter 35, verse 30. You see there the heading, construction of the tabernacle. So now we have the construction of the tabernacle and then the construction of the ark. Well, why is the order reversed and why would we bother to point that out? Well, surely the order is reversed because the ark is of such a holy magnitude that Bezalel cannot be crafting this ark out in the open for everyone to see. And so even though the instructions come first because in some senses it's the most important, now when it comes to building it, first we must have the tabernacle. And though it doesn't say so explicitly, I think we can assume that Bezalel would have been busy at work inside the tabernacle to craft this ark. And notice that not just anyone is assigned, most of the rest of it, we have Bezalel and Ohaliab as sort of the foreman, but here in particular we want the best of the best. We want Bezalel himself to build this ark. And no doubt he was constructing it inside the tabernacle, far away from peering eyes. So think about it. Virtually every Israelite for centuries and a millennia and a half, first in the tabernacle, then in the temple, they went their entire lives without ever seeing the ark of the covenant. If you've ever watched Raiders of the Lost Ark, you've seen more of the Ark than they did. 
not real. Uh, but they went their whole life. Who saw the ark? Well, Bezalel, who crafted it. Uh, on occasion, once a year, the high priest to go in. And then when they had to move the tent, there were a certain clans of the Levites who would, who would wrap it up. But even there, very few would see it. For it would be shrouded, literally, in mystery and then carried along for their whole lives. And surely there is something significant for us. It was just as easy to believe in an ark that they could never see as it is for us to believe in a God whom we cannot see. It was an element of faith that they heard about, passed down from generation to generation, recorded in their scriptures, that there was in that tent and in that temple later, there was an ark of the covenant. And they could not see it, but they knew of it. And they knew what it represented. And so they were being prepared all along for the kind of worship that Yahweh would want, for he is a God who is to be heard and not seen. So Bezalel constructs the ark. We continue, verse 10. He also made the table of acacia wood. Two cubits was its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. And he overlaid it with pure gold and made a molding of gold around it. And he made a rim around it, a handbreadth wide, and made a molding of gold around the rim. He cast for it four rings of gold and fastened the rings to the four corners as his four legs. Close to the frame were the rings as holders for the poles to carry the table. He made the poles of acacia wood to carry the table and overlaid them with gold. And he made the vessels of pure gold that were to be on the table, its plates and dishes for incense and its bowls and flagons with which to pour drink offerings. He also made the lampstands of pure gold. He made the lampstand of hammered work, its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes and its flowers were of one piece with it. And there were six branches going out on its side, three branches of the lampstand out of the one side of it, three branches of the lampstand out of the other side of it, three cups made like almond blossoms, each with its calyx and flower on one branch, and three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on the other branch. So for the six branches going out of the lampstand. And on the lampstand itself were four cups made like almond blossoms with their calyxes and flowers and a calyx of one piece with it under each pair of the six branches going out of it. Their calyxes and their branches were of one piece with it. The whole of it was a single piece of hammered work of pure gold and he made it seven lamps and its tongs and its trays of pure gold. He made it and all its utensils out of a talent of pure gold. This is what later would be called the menorah, the, the seven-branch lampstand. And it has it's an elaborate arrangement of different holding places for wax and for oils that would alight the lamp. Verse 25, he made the altar of incense of acacia wood. Its length was a cubit and its breadth was a cubit. It was square and two cubits was its height. Its horns were of one piece with it. He overlaid it with pure gold, its top and around its sides and its horns. And he made a molding of gold around it and made two rings of gold on it under its molding on two opposite sides of it as holders for the poles with which to carry it. And he made the poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold. He made the holy anointing oil also and the pure fragrant incense blended as by the perfumer. Chapter 38. He made the altar of burnt offering of acacia wood. Five cubits was its length and five cubits its breadth. It was square and three cubits was its height. He made horns for it on its four corners its horns were of one piece with it, and he overlaid it with bronze, and he made all the utensils of the altars, the pots, the shovels, the basins, the forks, and the fire pans. He made all its utensils of bronze, and he made for the altar a grating, a network of bronze under its ledge extending halfway down. 
He cast four rings on the four corners of the bronze grating as holders for the poles. He made the poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with bronze. And he put the poles through the rings on the sides of the altar to carry it with them. He made it hollow with boards. He made the basin of bronze and its stand of bronze from the mirrors of the ministering women who ministered in the entrance of the tent of meeting. Now, stop there for a moment. This is a fascinating comment. You may not have seen this before. But we read that there were women serving at the entrance of the tabernacle. You see that there in verse 8. And we know that this was not a one-time occurrence just here at the construction of the tabernacle because several centuries later we read of the same practice. Now here the practice has gone awry, but the practice nonetheless in 1 Samuel 2, now Eli was very old and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. But we see the practice continuing for centuries that there were women serving here at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Now what were they doing? We don't know exactly what they were doing. One of the commentaries, uh, Doug Stewart supposes that in keeping with the roles that women would have played in the ancient world, they may have been there to help clean the holy utensils or work the grounds or bring up the water supply or assist the priests in food preparation or wash the priestly garments or certainly they would have been there to probably assist with the women worshipers who were coming, perhaps some of them to offer sacrifices for uncleanness and you needed women to assist them so that men would not be tainted and be made unclean with ritual impurity. Now whatever they did, it is worth noting that even though the priests and the Levites were all men, it's not as if women were completely forbidden from playing a role in the tabernacle worship. Now, we would be going too far to make too many exact applications for our day, but surely we see something significant here that even as we come to New Testament worship and we know that the New Testament instructs that pastors, elders, deacons, officers are reserved for qualified men, yet that does not mean that women have no part to play in the service of God and indeed they have a key and instrumental part and we see it here even in the ancient world, even in the Old Testament in this little verse tucked away that women were serving and playing a role in the worship of the tabernacle. Continuing on, verse 9, and he made the court. For the south side, the hangings of the court were of fine twine linen, a hundred cubits. Their twenty pillars of their twenty bases were of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets were of silver. And for the north side, there were hangings of a hundred cubits. Their twenty pillars and their twenty bases were of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and the fillets were of silver. And for the west side were hangings of fifty cubits, their ten pillars and their ten bases. The hooks of the pillars and their fillets were of silver. And for the front to the east, 50 cubits. The hangings for one side of the gate were 15 cubits with their three pillars and three bases. And so for the other side, on both sides of the gate of the court were hangings of 15 cubits with their three pillars and their three bases. All the hangings around the court were of fine twine linen. And the bases for the pillars were of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets were of silver. The overlaying of their capitals was also of silver, and all the pillars of the court were filleted with silver. And the screen for the gates of the court was embroidered with needlework in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen. It was 20 cubits long and five cubits high in its breadth, corresponding to the hangings of the court. And their pillars were four in number. Their bases were of bronze 
and their hooks of silver and the overlaying of their capitals and their fillets of silver and all the pegs for the tabernacle and for the court all around were of bronze. These are the records of the tabernacle, the tabernacle of the testimony, as they were recorded at the commandment of Moses. The responsibility of the Levites under the direction of Ithamar, the son of Aaron, the priests, Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, made all that the Lord commanded Moses. And with him was Ohaliab, the son of Ahissamach, of the tribe of Dan, an engraver and designer and embroider in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. Now, what we're going to have here in this last paragraph is uh, a detailed record keeping of the most precious metals that were given for the construction of the tabernacle. Why would you include this? I mean, we have the construction of the tabernacle. It seems tedious enough already. Why do we record it? Well, to show, just as you would want to know, that someone is keeping track of your generous gifts. Aren't you glad that somebody knows where your gifts are going? Somebody gives you a, an, a receipt at the end of the year for tax purposes. Somebody keeps track. And so Moses, together with the Levites many of whom would have also been scribes, we see them fulfilling this function here as they make a precise counting, not simply a general approximation, but a precise counting of all the gifts. And it was quite a generous gift. As we read through here to come, remember that a talent was 75 pounds. So we are talking about thousands of pounds of gold and silver that were given for the construction of the tabernacle. And Moses wanted to be sure that the people knew for certain where their gifts were going and they had been accounted for. All the gold, verse 24, that was used for the work and all the construction of the sanctuary, the gold from the offering was 29 talents and 730 shekels by the shekel of the sanctuary. So that's like counting it down to the dollar amount. The silver from those of the congregation who were recorded was 100 talents and 1,775 shekels by the shekel of the sanctuary. A beka, a head, that is half a shekel by the shekel of the sanctuary for everyone who was listed in the records from 20 years old and upward for 603,550 men. The 100 talents of silver were for casting the bases of the sanctuary and the bases of the veil. A hundred bases for the hundred talents, a talent, a base. And of the 1,775 shekels, he made hooks for the pillars and overlaid their capitals and made fillets for them. The bronze that was offered was 70 talents and 2,400 shekels. With it, he made the bases for the entrance of the tent of meeting, the bronze altar and the bronze grating for it and all the utensils of the altar, the bases around the court and the bases of the gate of the court, all the pegs of the tabernacle and all the pegs around the court." So what are we going to do with this passage for the next 20 minutes? It is almost verbatim a word-for-word repetition of what we saw before the golden calf. First, Moses said, you are to do all of this. Of course, they sinned with the golden calf, but now they are doing all of this. What I want you to notice rather than going through what we already saw with each of these pieces and what they represent and what they symbolize, when we come to something so repetitive, it's useful to notice what's different. And there is in this section a name for the tabernacle which appears only once 
in the entire book of Exodus. Look again at verse 21. These are the records of the tabernacle, the tabernacle of the testimony. This is the only time in the book of Exodus that it is called the tabernacle of the testimony. Now, what you call your building actually matters, begins to stick for good or for bad. I was born in Chicago, and so I root for Chicago sports teams. I'm a Chicago White Sox fan. Their AAA affiliate is here in Charlotte, which is convenient. The Chicago White Sox, I can say as a lifelong fan, have the worst stadium name in all of sports. Back in the good old days, it was Comiskey Park. That had a lot of history. I went to some games there. And then they built a new stadium in the 90s, and it was called U.S. Cellular Field. Now, if you think that is a lame name, in 2016, those naming rights expired, and now it has a new name, Guaranteed Rate Field. Worst name for a stadium in all of sports. At least you could call it the cell, and that sounded kind of cool for U.S. Cellular, but guaranteed rate, nothing against whoever the, whatever they do with guaranteed rates there with loans or banks, but it is a horrible name for a stadium, and it's embarrassing as a White Sox fan. What you name your place matters. We, we've reflected before, what do we call this place? Well, you call it a worship center, it's appropriate. What we do here is worship. Some people call it a sanctuary. I think that's appropriate too because what we do here is set apart for a holy purpose. It's not a sanctuary in the sense that the tabernacle was, but it is a a set apart. We do something here unique. The most common term that we would use for this whole building, of course, is church. Our word church or kirk or kirke is actually not related to the Greek word ekklesia. Ekklesia means a gathering, an assembly. But rather our word is related to kyriake, which means belonging to the church. The kirk, the kirke, the church is that building, that space that is belonging to the Lord. The word kyriakon was given to the place where God's people assembled to worship because the first Christians believed it was a place belonging to the Lord. Now, I know there may even be one or two of you here tonight, people who get bent out of shape and say, Pastor, man, we can't go to church. We are the church, dude. If you just got to add dude or bro or something, okay? We can't go to church. You are the church. All right, I get it. We are the church. But listen, the first converts to Christianity came out of what? Synagogues. Synagogue is just a parallel term to ecclesia. A synagogue is a gathering. Ecclesia is a gathering. And you know what? Sometimes in the Bible, the synagogue refers to a building. So I'm just not going to get bent out of shape if you refer to a building as the church, even though, yes, also, we collectively are the body, the church. This is a place Kuriakon, it belongs to the Lord. It says something, a worship center, a sanctuary, uh, a church. Those labels describe something of what happens here and what this building is supposed to be about. Which brings us back here to verse 21. 
The only time in Exodus it is called the tabernacle of the testimony. And there are only three other, three, three fingers, only three other times in the rest of the Old Testament that it is referred by this name. Numbers chapter 1 verse 50, 153 and Numbers 10, 11. So this is unique and when it stands out you have to step back and ask yourself, what is this trying to communicate? It's one of those titles that actually summarizes a lot of what we have been talking about the tabernacle, and it suggests a lot about even our New Testament worship. So I want to very quickly give you four ways that this name can help us understand Old Testament worship and even understand our worship. Number one, <clears throat> this title, The Tabernacle of the Testimony, helps us to understand what was there. Now, what was there in the tabernacle? Well, eventually when it was built and all put together, you would have the holiest artifact, the ark. And Hebrews tells us there were three things inside the ark. Okay, think to yourself, write them down, see how you're doing with your Bible trivia, the three things that were there inside the ark. The manna, Aaron's staff that budded, and the Tablets of the Covenant, the Ten Commandments. Have you ever thought about why those three things? Well, they give a pretty powerful summary of Israel's faith and Yahweh's strength. The manna points to God's provision. Aaron's staff points to God's power, this staff that swallowed up Pharaoh's serpents, this staff that budded to represent the choosing of the tribe to serve God and his sanctuary. And the tablets of the covenant represent God's proclamation. There we have in the ark the Ten Commandments. That is the witness and the testimony to the covenant. And it's always good to think, well, what's not there that may have been there in surrounding religions? Well, we have no relics, no human hair, we have no magic amulets. We have no golden idols or statues. That's what the surrounding nations would have had in their holy temples. But here we have a symbol that God provides for us, that God is powerful, and with the Ten Commandments, God's proclamation. That's why it's called a tabernacle of testimony. It is the place where the Ten Commandments reside, a place of witness where they would testify of their covenant allegiance, and even more so, God would testify to them. And this says something powerful about our worship. Doug Stewart in his commentary says this, a simple slogan for the essence of a covenant in the Old Testament would be, no rules, no relationship. One of the obvious flaws of the current widespread ethos in many Western manifestations of evangelical Christianity that emphasizes the need for a relationship with God but de-emphasizes the need for obedience to biblical rules is that one cannot exist without the other. The proof of a covenant relationship is the keeping of the covenant. Say that again. The proof of a covenant relationship is the keeping of the covenant. Isn't that true with your covenant of marriage? The proof that that covenant is valuable, that that covenant is precious to you, isn't ultimately what you feel about it, though we want to have good feelings about it, but ultimately that you keep that covenant arrangement. He says, the proof of conversion to Christ is living a converted life. 
Isn't that what Jesus says? If you love me, you will, what? Obey my commandments. The tabernacle was called a tabernacle of testimony because what you had there were the tablets of the testimony where God would bear witness to his people, his rules, his obligations. So we see with this title what was there. Second, we see not only what was literally there, but what was symbolized there. And what was symbolized, we'll see more of this next week, what was symbolized was the Lord's presence. It was often called the tent of meeting. Why? Because there God would meet with you. Or at least he would meet with the high priest and through him as a mediator to the rest of the nation. The glory cloud would descend upon the tabernacle and above the mercy seat representing God's presence. But how else would God be present? Well, surely he would be present in the testimony of the commandments themselves by his word by his divine witness. That's why when you think of Jesus in the Gospel of John, he uses interchangeably these phrases, that I abide in you when my words abide in you, and when my words abide in you, I abide in you. People think often, well, I, I wanna have Jesus in my heart, I wanna have Jesus in my life. How do you have Jesus abiding in you? You got to do it in some crassly literal way. You got a little miniature shrunken Jesus or a little Jesus pill that you take down. Or does having Jesus in you just speak to a certain uh, emotional ethos that is going on in your, in your gut at all times? Jesus says, no, you have me abiding in you when my words abide in you. It's the tabernacle of the testimony because literally the testimony is there, and symbolically, where the testimony is, there God dwells. When God's word is faithfully sung, faithfully heard, faithfully read, and faithfully preached, God is there. No matter how gifted or not your preacher may be, how stumbling his sermons when the word of God is faithfully read and proclaimed, we have week after week the presence of God. Don't you want to meet God? Don't you want to know God? Don't you want to be in the presence of God? There is no surer place to come face to face with the living God than wherever his word is preached. Now yes, that is an article of faith. Sometimes it's an article of faith for you who have to listen to boring sermons. I believe that even in this, God is present. Believe me, it's an article of faith for poor preachers who have to believe Sunday after Sunday when it feels like a waste. Well, God, you inhabit the praises of your people and you are here in the preaching of your word. It's the tabernacle of the testimony because the testimony was literally there and because where God's words are found, there God himself dwells. Third, we see here in their worship and ours a reminder of what took place there. What took place there? Now, you know that the tabernacle was chiefly to be a place of sacrifice, but not exclusively so. We will see later in scripture that the priests 
were also to be teachers. For a long time, Israel was without the true God and without a teaching priest and without the law. That's from Chronicles. Without a teaching priest. We think of the priests as just, just handling the blood and the guts, but we see here they were also to be teachers. Now, over time in Israel's history, the functions of sacrifice and teaching would be separated largely between the temple for sacrifice and the synagogue for teaching. But we see in this title here in chapter 38, a precursor of what we will see develop in the rest of the Bible, namely, that central to the worship of God's people is testimony, witness, words, teaching, proclamation. That even here where sacrifices and ritual would be preeminent, yet it is called a tabernacle of testimony because God has words for his people. Now, this is so ordinary to most of us if you're in the Protestant tradition and especially if you're in a Reformed church like this. We all sort of know that, well, the, the, the preaching is the thing and the centrality of the pulpit, and that's why we have ginormous pulpits up here. But do you realize how unique this is? I remember when I was in seminary and, and with a, a missions group, we drove down from Boston to New York City, and we did sort of a, an immersion weekend to experience some other religious traditions and to meet with some people, and we were also hoping for opportunities to do evangelism. And so if my memory serves correctly, we went and we walked around in a, a Hindu temple. Of course, we didn't participate in anything. And we, we went into a Sikh temple and saw some of the rituals, and we, we met with a priest there and asked him some questions, and he explained to us what they were doing, and we talked to him about we, we were students, and we were studying for pastoral ministry and what we believed as Christians, and, and everyone was very nice, and it was a, a good experience. One of the things that struck me was how obvious it was in, in just walking through and sort of witnessing these other services, how the ritual was the thing. You would go into this temple and people just sort of milling around and young men who were just going through different uh, sweeping of incense or different oblations or different sort of sacrificial rites. And there was no lecture. There was no talk. I don't think it's unfair to say these men were not particularly taught in their scriptures, but they were there to do a ritual. Even in many Roman Catholic churches, the, the ritual is the thing. If the priest can do a, a short homily and it's not too clunky, well, then that's a bonus. But the thing is the ritual that takes places. Where else in the modern world, after you graduate from school, do you go week after week to hear someone teach you something? Now, yes, you go to conferences. Yes, you have presentations. Those are thrilling, I'm sure. Uh, we have TED Talks. People like those. But where do you go regularly and you hear the same person? That sounds dreadful. And he teaches from the same book. That's not very creative. Every week. And you're supposed to do that for the rest of your life. This doesn't happen outside of the Judeo-Christian tradition. It begins here with the tabernacle of the testimony. The sermon was not stolen from the pagans. It was not inherited from the enlightenment. It came from Judaism. 
which developed and refined a practice of exegesis and expositional preaching in the centuries leading up to Christ. We know, says Hughes Oliphant Old, that in the time of Jesus, the Torah, the law of Moses, was regularly read and preached and worshipped. This was the cardinal characteristic of Jewish worship. And we see it throughout the Old Testament. The Levites were to teach Israel the law, Deuteronomy 33.10. The true priest was a teaching priest, 2 Chronicles 15.3. Ezra read the law to the exiles, giving them the sense of it, Nehemiah 8. We see the same thing in the New Testament. We know that John the Baptist preached, Jesus preached, Paul preached. He instructed his apprentice Timothy with the most solemn warning to preach. Even Jesus himself, we should remember, was a trainer of preachers, sending his disciples not out to facilitate group discussions, though those have a place, but to preach. And the apostles considered the ministry of the word such a full-time job, they had to appoint seven other men to care for the physical needs because they had to be devoted to teaching and to prayer. We can see it in the early church from the very beginning. There was a whole army of prophets and teachers and those who would travel and minister the word to God's people. Teaching and preaching were central to the ministry of the early church. And it goes back not only to the synagogue, but it goes back to this tabernacle of the testimony. This tabernacle where God's covenant obligations were to be known, remembered, heeded, and obeyed. In other words, this was the place where God would speak. Now, of course, as time would go on, there would be prophets. They would have Torah scrolls. They would have scripture written down. They maybe even had small group Bible studies. But yet, this was a place, a unique place where God would speak. And so it is in our day with all the access we have to good books and to good studies and all those things we should do. Yet, in this place, on the Lord's day, for worship, this is to be still a tabernacle of God's testimony to us. Which leads to a final point. Not only do we see in this title what took place there and what was there and symbolically what was represented there, but finally, what would be better than there? What would be better? Think about what the the tabernacle was all about. Essentially, two things, God's presence and God's testimony. It was called the tent of meeting, presence, and the tabernacle of testimony, words. Presence, testimony, presence, testimony. Well, I hope you don't have to think too hard to see the New Testament connections that we have the perfect and final fulfillment of these things in Christ. What are perhaps the most famous names for Christ? He is Emmanuel, God with us. He is our tent of meeting. And he is also the Logos, the Word made flesh. Which is why Hebrews 8, 9, and 10 will go to such great lengths to explain how we have a better tabernacle. We have a better high priest. We have one who has represented not just symbolically God's presence and not written in pieces of stone, but in human flesh and blood. God with us. The word made flesh. And so when we come to worship, 
We are centered on words. We are focused on words. You sit and you listen to a man speak God's words. And all of that is that we might know Christ. We come to encounter Christ. I hope when you prepare to come, and I know how frazzled it is. I have a bazillion kids. I know what it's like. And you come and you're in the car and you're trying to put away all the arguments that you've had on the way there and you come in. And, but I hope you come with a sense of anticipation that you come to encounter Christ. You come to hear from Christ. You come to obey Christ. You come to enjoy Christ. Isaiah 8:20 can be waved like a banner over the worship in the Old Testament and over our worship today. To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to his word, it is because they have no dawn. If you want the sun to rise, if you want there to be a dawning in your life, to the teaching, to the testimony, to the worship of Christ with God's people week after week. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we give thanks that you have not left to our own devices to imagine what you are like. You have not left us merely with the book of nature, but you have given us your word. Not only general revelation, but special, supernatural revelation. And that we, people of such privilege, can have this book in a language we can understand. And we can hear hundreds and thousands of sermons and have walls of Christian books and go to hundreds and thousands of Bible studies and hear your testimony. We thank you, O Lord, for this is your doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. In Jesus we pray, amen.